we're live. We are live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Strong Tea. I'm Vicky. And Katie's Katie. taking a sip of her tea. <laughs> I'm Katie. I'm here, though, but I'm just drinking my tea because it's all important. <laughs> and together we are Strong Tea. Now, if you haven't joined us before, um, why not? Um, but if this is your first episode, um, we at Strong Tea like to talk about topics that can be a little bit difficult to talk about. Some people think they're taboo, but really we want it to be a journey where everyone learns, explores, and topics that really we think should be talked about a little bit more amongst ourselves. Um, so today's podcast is called My Mental Health Journey, and we have our wonderful guest, Paul, who Katie will introduce uh, next. And Katie? Yes, I'm here. I'm still here. You're here. I Brilliant. Am. I am. Your part. <laughs> Yes, you're right. I am here to introduce um, the wonderful Paul, who is with us today. Paul, um, uh, I came across on LinkedIn many years ago, um, linked up and followed his journey. And it's been um, nothing short of inspiring to actually uh, listen to him talk about his passions and what he has been doing with his life for the, for the past few years. So I'm going to hand over to Paul shortly. Um, but what we will do first is we're going to ask you what you're drinking. So, Paul, I'm going to ask you first because you are the guest. So what is in your cup today? It's a really boring one. You know, it's, it's an instant, instant black coffee. So it's not it's not anything special. Um, <laughs> but as, as, as I, I'm at my in-laws for a while while our house is getting renovated. So normally I have a really nice coffee machine. I'll drink like three coffees a, a day and then I'll normally have an English breakfast on El Grey in the evening with a, a few biscuits so there you go that's that's my normal drinking nice. thing nice no one ever tells them a choice of biscuit that's a good living show. life on the edge aren't i biscuits well, and tea. yeah you're our first earl gray guest i don't think we've had an earl gray i chuck earl gray in there probably once once every two months so it's just me mm. probably sounding a lot healthier than i actually am do you, do you, do you drink it with milk or just like a no, slice of lemon? on its own not lemon, just on its own. Oh, just and on its own. green tea, green green tea on its own, and then if I have an English breakfast tea, no sugars and a tiny bit of milk, so like strong, okay. so really strong. just in right for your podcast. That's good. That's good. Nice. Although, although do, I've got to ask this question: If you said you've mentioned green tea now, do you actually like green tea? <laughs> I do actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's very. It's a very good question, actually. <laughs> Now making me think, do I like it or do I like the potential health benefits? Why, why would you? What, why would you like green tea? It's, why? <laughs> <laughs> we, we watched Vicky drink a, a cup uh, during a call a couple of weeks ago and she said, I've gone really healthy. I'm having a green tea. And every time she took a sip, just this grimace of <laughs> just she's like, I don't like this. I don't know why I'm trying to trying to like it. <laughs> So on that note, Vicky, what are you drinking today? Yeah, another schoolgirl error this week. So I thought I'd give three ginger a go. Um, yeah, I'm not the biggest fan, but I don't like ginger. So I kind of set myself up there, didn't I? Um, but I'm learning. I'm The tea journey is long and fruitful. So. Well, I'm going to let you all down today because I've just gone for a, a Yorkshire, a Yorkshire standard. Um, but it is strong. So that's good. Oh, don't shake your head at me. It's a good tea. It's good. Do you, have sugar? Well, do you have sugar, Katie, or not? I do not have sugar. Just a little bit of milk, but strong enough so you can sand your spoon up in it. You know, like real builder's tea. Nice. Yeah, that's where it's at. Anyway, that's like a good five minutes of podcast there, isn't it? So, <laughs> so without further ado, um, I'm going to hand over to Paul, who is Paul McGregor of Every Mind at Work and a general all-round all Superman, um, as you will soon hear. So, uh, Paul, can you just tell us your story, please? For sure, we'll go. We'll go straight into the to the the journey of I guess why I'm sat here and um, the aim of today's podcast. To be brutally honest, and and again, that really aligns with what you guys do by the sounds of it. But yeah, so I I've been sharing my own story and experience of mental health for I would say the last four or five years. Um, and across those four or five years, that's been a gradual process. I would say you know it started with I shared my experience in a blog post anonymously. And then that led to, you know, me then saying, right, I'm going to put my name to it and then more stuff on social media and and then, you know, doing some public speaking. And Every Mind at Work now is, is the organisation that I started and we work with a lot of corporates to help them tackle mental health stigma in businesses. Um, and that's growing really nicely. But 
you know, the core reason of why I do everything that I do in the mental health space is through my own personal experiences, as I'm sure we'll go into in more detail in today's session, um, today's um, podcast. But yeah, I, I was someone who was impacted by mental illness without ever imagining that I'll be impacted by mental illness. Um, and I often sort of share what I mean by that in the fact of my idea of mental illness was growing up wasn't a very good one. And it might be something that you or your listeners can relate to, you know, mental illness to me was straight jackets, padded cells and personalities that don't act like me. You know, that was the brutal reality of it because that's what I saw like in the movies and in newspapers and everything else. Um, so I never believed it would impact me or my family or friends or anyone. Um, but sadly I was impacted through my dad and my dad was someone who you would never, ever, ever question that was struggling with his mental health until the day that, he broke like it was just so so quick in terms of us now knowing that he was struggling with his mental health um and it was and when I say he broke it was like his behaviors were changing he was telling us that he was struggling he was um talking about stuff like you know where the money is if anything happens to me like it was so quick and drastic but you still never ever expect my dad to to be in that mindset and that mind state that he was in um but with that sort of initial breakdown and us knowing that there was an issue then followed was a six month period of my dad you know getting better getting worse getting better getting worse um in and out of a mental health unit for about four and a half months out of that six months again that's not a very nice place to ever go and visit someone um attempted suicide very quickly after that initial sort of diagnosis and breakdown and, and yeah, times where like he was good and talking about going back to work and times where he was like, again, in that sort of crisis situation. But yeah, as we'll sort of explore in today's session, the key reason why I do what I do is that I, you know, my dad is a, a core inspiration to the work that I do because sadly we did lose him to suicide on the 4th of March, 2009. And um, I think when that happened, there was a part where I expected it at that point because obviously the six months previous to that and the experiences that we had, but when that happened, I had no idea how to deal with it. Like literally no idea. Grief is difficult and I'm not generalizing here, but like suicide, I found it very difficult to grieve. I didn't understand it. I was like, okay, he's made the decision and like, I just need to move forward and get on with life. And, and what led to, for me, it was like, just, yeah, bottle it up, don't talk about it, get on with life, carry on as normal and wear that mask. So it was a yeah, difficult period for me, but I was very fortunate. I, I got help a few years later through therapy and it still took me a long, long time from therapy to talk as openly as I am now. But, um, and I think that's the core message that I always try and get across is it's like, we, we carry a lot of shame when it comes to mental health. We don't like to talk about it. And personal experience plays a massive part in that. If we can get more people to share their own stories and journeys without feeling that shame and that judgment, that then can allow others to feel comfortable to do so as well. So it's probably a very long-winded answer to that question, but that's why I'm sat here. It's, it's very much driven by my dad and um, the experience that I had with him. In terms of, um, I mean, just just listening to that, it's it sounds so like such a hard thing to have to understand and go through um at the time and also following on from that um you talked about the six months where you kind of saw that he was getting better getting worse I mean did that create so much frustration for you that you thought I, I can't I don't know what to do I can't you know seeing like looking from the outside in I suppose to someone that you think I don't know how to help them and then when it happened did you feel did you feel angry or did you just think you know he's at peace now or how how did that sort of manifest itself afterwards I always say to people like the the six months that we experienced with my dad I don't know how people how people deal with it any longer than that so that shows you how challenging that period was so when people say oh yeah my my parent or child or whatever it could be has been like this for years I just I couldn't imagine it because that six months was was hard and and I think as you've highlighted it was it was really like treading on eggshells not knowing what to say or what to do not knowing how he was feeling or or any of that um and as I said you know my dad's when we knew there was an issue with my dad we we took him to the doctors the, the, the day after you know we acted very quickly when we knew he was prescribed antidepressants signed up from work 
you know, told that he had depression. But you come home as a family, not with like a manual of like, hey, this is how you support someone. It's like, okay. I'd, and even equally back then, I think back to that, my understanding of depression up to that point was head in your hand, you're always sad you don't leave the house. Depression wasn't my dad. So there's a big part of me, probably unconsciously, saying to myself, what have you got to be depressed about? <laughs> I don't get it. I don't understand it back then because I haven't had the education or the understanding. So there's probably a part of me back then, my mom, everyone, where we still, even at that point, never, ever, ever thought he would try and take his own life because you're like, okay, depression, he'll be all right tomorrow. We'll start to take some tablets, be fine. You know, that's kind of the idea that we had. But yeah, my dad attempted suicide and it was a very serious attempt about six days after that initial diagnosis. So um, I always say, and he was very, very lucky to survive that. I always say, if, if he didn't survive that, I think I would have struggled even more. Right. Because of how quick it was. Like, how can you go from like work and everything's fine to seven days later, that attempt? But because he survived that attempt, and even though he was like, I would never have done that, and it was very much in denial at the beginning, and there was like, we'll go home, everything's fine, the nightmare's over, we'll never talk about this again. Um, as soon as he deteriorated again, and we had the experience in the mental health unit, we saw people like in that unit that were dealing with like borderline personality disorder, psychosis, you know, that made it a bit more real. It's like, okay, this isn't just like depression. This is, this is bad. Like he's, we're now being exposed to mental illness for like six months. But, um, but yeah, the day it happened, there was almost like this really strange feeling of, I knew it was going to happen. Um, right. And what I mean by that is my dad deteriorated again on the Saturday and when I say deteriorated, he was up in his, um, he was at my nan and granddad's house then. He was up in the bedroom. And me and my mum went around there. My brother went around there. And they were like, he was really bad last night. And um, he's upstairs. He won't come out. And I remember I went up there because I'm a fixer. And I was like, I'll go and see if he's all right. And he was in like, curled up in, a bed, in the bed, like curled up. And it was like a child. And um. I'd seen my dad like it across that six months, but his eyes were like, I was looking at someone completely different. Like when I looked him in the eyes, it sounds so strange. It's like, it wasn't my dad. He was like, I don't know. It was just, he was saying stuff and he was, I want to go for a run. I want to go for a run. And I knew that was him saying, I just want to get out. I want to get out and do what he was going to do. And, you know, we called an ambulance. We got an ambulance there. Again, we, I could talk forever about the, the poor treatment of, 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 you know, how things went, but they then took him into the hospital. I followed him down. He was then taken to one hospital that he shouldn't have been at. And then I waited for with him for like, I don't know, seven, eight hours. Again, he was just like asleep the whole time. He then got moved back into the mental health unit that he was in on that Saturday. And he was let out on the Monday. And he was let out on a physical assessment, not a mental assessment in the mental health unit. Wow. So it was almost like at that point, the fight that we had to go through at that weekend, the ups that then turned into this huge down again, and now he's out. It was like this, you know, just exhaustion. Yeah. And I went to see him on that night um, after work. And he was sat like opposite me. And he was the worst he'd been. Like he was saying, I'll never be the same dad again. Like just laying on the sofa, worst he's ever been. But I was like, I, I don't know what to do. Like, don't know what to do anymore. Like, we tried so hard to get him into the unit where we thought he'd be safe, he'd be treated again. And I thought, you know, I'll go home and get some sleep, go to work the next day. You know, as a family, we'll think about something else that we can try and do to help him. And then sadly, that was the day, the next day he took his own life. So I never got to see him again after that. And there was, of course, as you say, a lot of anger, a lot of guilt that comes with, with suicide. Um, but yeah, there was, I wouldn't say relief, but a lot of us were expecting it at that point when he did actually take his own life for sure. Right. Sounds like, I mean, yeah, that's incredibly powerful. And thank you so much for, for sharing that. Cause that's, yeah, that's pretty raw. Yeah. Um, I guess what I'm trying to ask is that obviously at the beginning, you said that mental health was a bit kind of um, mysterious. It's almost like you didn't believe in it and you didn't really understand, you know, depression was a stereotypical kind of approach. And, it sounds like all the things and the obstacles that you experienced in trying to help your dad, you know, it sounds like the medical care wasn't very good. And 
did those things actually help in building your knowledge about what mental health was and the level of support and how insufficient it was at that early stage? It's a good question. It's funny, there was an, there was an article on my dad because obviously um, it was a, I never really talk about methods, but it was a, a suicide that happened in, in public. Um, and again, stuff like that, you know, my dad was such a, a people pleaser and, you know, would never, this is why I always struggle to deal with it because I'm like, how can you be in a headspace to go, you know, and, and do something like that? You know, rationally, my dad was never, ever going to, to do that. Um, so obviously it was like an accident, but because it caused a bit of traffic, it, it had um, some, some press exposure. And there was an article about my dad and you know when you go into the comments on these sort of stuff and there was one guy that was just oh you know so selfish like left people behind all this stuff because it happens right it happens and I remember I looked back at the article a few years ago and I responded like the day after my dad's suicide to say something like unless you know the full story unless you know that my dad was really unwell um I don't think you should make a judgment on it and that was like it really surprised me because I was like there's an 18 year old guy who who's sort of seeing that okay my dad had an illness and he passed um and I never thought I saw it in that way back then um but I would say my biggest lessons around mental health was because of my own struggles so what I mean by that is I had to get to rock bottom myself to to truly appreciate and understand what I needed to do to manage my own mental health and I, I'm not saying that's like a good strategy for anyone, but again, that comes back to that whole stiff upper lip, just get on with it, man up kind of approach that I took. And I would say, yeah, I learned so much myself from having to experience depression, anxiety that I had, um, you know, going to therapy myself, working through a lot of this stuff with my dad. I would say I learned more there than, you know, straight after it happened. So again, like I get lots of messages from people that have lost people to suicide and they're like, how do you talk so openly about it? And I say, how long has it been? They're like, two months. So like, well, no, like it didn't, it, I didn't, I didn't talk to anyone for like four years. Like, and I didn't feel comfortable to talk to anyone. It took me so much to go to see a therapist. So I think there's a lot of rawness that comes when you lose someone in that way. But yeah, I'd say I learned more from my own struggles for sure. You mentioned um, quite early on in that where you talked about before you went to therapy, you experienced feeling sort of shame and vulnerability that you didn't really know how to deal with. How, and I can imagine there's a lot of people that have suffered scenarios such as yourself and also different mental health scenarios. Um, how did you overcome that? Because that's a, that's a huge thing for people that aren't open, isn't it? To actually step out the front door and go, I need to go and see someone. I need to get that help. How did you, how did you find the strength in yourself to do that? Mm. It's a really good question. And I think we need to talk more about shame because I give you, I didn't give you much context. My dad was like an incredible human being. Like he, um, he ran like every day, once, if not twice a day, if there's any runners that listen to this, he was a very good runner. Like he was a, a 15 minute 5k runner. Um, hold on what wait what (laughs) yeah 15 minute 5k runner like he was yeah he was quick like I've got his running book at my house because he used to run train this is before like Strava and apps on your phone right (laughs) he would train right in a book right in a book right in a book and I was going through it the other day because I'm getting into running and I'm like trying to get closer to his times and um I'm like wow like he was quick this is before like technology and good shoes and everything so he was really really quick so he was someone who like run a lot he meditated like this was this was meditation in 2007 listening to an Enya CD like this wasn't again apps on your phone sounds, or anything. sounds amazing yeah I remember like walking past <laughs> like his it, we had a spare room because he was a part-time physiotherapist as well and I was like what is that music? And I remember walking in and my dad's like sitting there, eyes closed. And I'm like, med- like med- I never got meditation back then. Um, yeah, like Reiki, yoga, um, very social, lots of friends. Like his funeral, the car park was blocked off because there was too many cars. Like there was just so many people at my dad's funeral. So I think about that because there's a lot of focus and I talk about it a lot, like those healthy habits. I, I go for my run, I like journal, I do all of that stuff. But I think with my dad, he's a prime example of how much shame can overpower any of that stuff. So like he had all of that stuff that kept him going, I'm sure for a very long time, but I don't know 
But I'm sure my dad carried so much shame of what he was feeling, the, the thoughts that he was having and the fact that he couldn't talk about them. And then that was the same experience that I had. It's like, I'll be very brutal and honest with all of you. I would, I would, I would literally go out of my mates to the pub. I'd laugh, I would joke, I'd crack, I'd smile. Like two, three months after my dad's suicide, I'd come home, I'd bury my head in a pillow, I'd cry my eyes out because I don't want my mum to hear, I don't want anyone to hear because I'll burden them. And I'd never tell anyone that. You know, I would go to, to my job at the time. I would, um, leave, I, would, I would commute there in the car, listen to songs that me and my dad used to listen to, cry my eyes out and thinking to myself, why, why, why? All these emotions that come in. Five minutes before I got to the office, tears wipe, loud music on, get more upbeat, walk in the office. Hey guys, everyone all right? Great weekend. And that was me. Like it was very much, I wouldn't let anyone see what I was seeing because of, again, the potential shame judgment that could come with that. And, and I do look back on that experience and I think to myself, well, how silly am I? Because I just lost my dad to suicide. <laughs> like it's, it's that's a human thing that you must know that someone's struggling. But I just felt I had to have this like macho kind of like, oh, I'm fine, everything's good. And, and that, te- that tore me apart. So I think having the strength to go to therapy, if I'm honest, was because again, I was at rock bottom. I was desperate for some help from somewhere. And I had tried therapy in the past shortly after my dad, but it, it wasn't effective then. And again, it could be the therapist, could be the timing. But I, yeah, I went to see Anne and, and I went to see Anne because Anne actually offers um, massage as well. So she's more of like a holistic therapist. So my wife, which we wasn't married at the time, she was like, you should go see this lady. She's really weird. She knows more about you than you know about yourself. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I, th- I was really drawn to that. <clears throat> and I went to see Anne. And I think as a man in particular, I went there like, I've got a back problem, man. Like my back's really sore. Like, you know, I'm, I'm here for my back. And she was like, okay, okay. And then I think after a few sessions, she started to talk openly about her experiences and what she was up, what she'd been through and stuff like that. And then I remember, I think it was like the third session. She was like, why are you here, Paul? I was like, I'm here for my backhand. I've got like a really bad back problem. <laughs> she was like, no, Paul, like, why are you really here? And like that got me. Like, oh, I just hands, cried. deep. She was deep. Like she, I cried my eyes out. I was like, <gasps> I was like, my dad took his own life. I don't know how to deal with it. And um, and yeah, that for me was the catalyst. So I think I talk a lot about you have to feel comfortable in therapy and men in particular. There's great research that shows it has to sometimes be meaningful. And, and what I mean by that is a lot of guys get a lot more from going to maybe like a, a community football group or like, you know, something that's meaningful where they can then talk about their feelings with other men or other people. And I think having that with Anne was, was key. Like I went there for my back, <laughs> but inside I went there for another reason, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. It sounds like a massive demasking kind of mm-hmm. episode that you needed. Cause it, as you say, a lot of people do wear that mask and then just take it off when they're on their own. And the, the weight of the mask gets heavier every time yeah. they go out. And, and perhaps, sorry. sorry, I was just going to say that. I think that's a really important point. And I forgot to mention it's like, I want people to realize that Anne was then one person that I could take the mask off to be vulnerable. And that was it. And what I mean by that is I didn't go to Anne, cry, take the mask off and then jump out and be like, Hey everyone, this is me. And this is what I've been struggling with. Like it took me, I'd say three to four years of going to Anne every week, mask off. As soon as I left that door, mask on. Like there was still this shame that I carried, but Anne was this one person. And then yeah, three or four years later, I then felt comfortable to tell my best friend that I was going to therapy. So just pulling my best friend aside over a beer and saying, Spence, I've been going therapy for the last three or four years. And he was like, what? Like every time we go out, you're fine. Like you laugh, you're, you, you, everything's good. What do you mean you're going to therapy? So it was that, con- it was this really, as you say, with a mask, I don't want people to feel like you go to therapy, you cry and hey, now the mask's off mm-hmm. forever. But I still wear the mask now, but it's, it's, it's choosing when I want to be vulnerable. And I think it's like you have to slowly, slowly, slowly peel away those layers. So then you feel more comfortable to be vulnerable with more people. So sorry to sorry to jump in. I just wanted to make that clear. No, well. not at all. I think. Oh, sorry. No, okay. I was just, no, I know you. I know you're going to ask a really good question. But just before <laughs> before we move on from that point, I just wondered. You mentioned about your wife saying, "Go to Anne." Did you, were you unmasked, if you like, for using that term, with her? Were you your no. true self? No. No. I said to her, I've got that problem. And she was like, oh, Anne does massage. She, 
she's really cute my friend goes there and um she's really weird and yeah so it was right <laughs> I wasn't unmasked of her at all um I would say we was only really like we were early on in our our relationship then so there was a big part of me of like I can't tell her because she's going to leave me like she's going to judge me all of this so I think it still took me I'd say about two or three years of going to Anne to start to be open with her as well it's fascinating how you've kind of turned vulnerability into almost a bit of a superpower because it it mm. opens up so much yeah. more for you and channels all the the hurt and yeah it, it helps peel that mask away but I, get, I'm, I may be leaping way ahead too many questions but I'm I'm really curious as to how, how am I going to wear this? So myself and Katie, we've talked about grief between us and on a podcast um, before. And for me in particular, grief and my anxiety and everything else, it's come become a part of my self-identity. It's become a part of me. When did you, A, do you feel the same that your grief and your mental health has become a part of you and part of how you identify? And B, when did that happen? Mm. I think it always is right so again every experience that we've had has an impact on who we are and who we become um but I think the biggest catalyst and change for me was actually when I started to feel more empowered by the grief rather than I can't believe this has happened to me why has this happened to me I can't move forward without my dad and and I, I'm also going to put this out there I still have those moments so like <laughs> I think you see it sometimes where it's like, oh, yeah, now I'm like this motivational guru and life's fine. Like, that's not that's not me at all. I miss him. Right. I miss him dearly. And there's days where I do really struggle still. Um, but I think the biggest change for me was saying to myself, like, I can't change what happened. And I think when I become a dad, I was like, what do I want from my kids? OK, I want them to be happy. So like, what does my dad want from me? He wants me to be happy. He wants me to move forward and, and so on. And it. You know, the work that I do, it does it does give me goosebumps every time I think about it of like how many people and I say my dad has impacted, you know, I tell the story and I, I deliver it. But it's really my dad who's who's helped so many people. And, and that gives me a lot of peace um, in some way as well. I, I do sometimes find it difficult to to switch off from that, which is also the the challenge side of it and what I mean by that is because I'm so passionate about it and I want to like grow every mind consistently and help more and more people there comes a time where it's like okay is it a bit more overwhelming um and what I mean by that is I'm sure you guys can relate to this it's having those moments where like I'm not talking about mental health like mental health is off the cards I just sometimes with one of my friends I'll be like look can we just go for a beer um and do you mind if we don't talk about work or like mental health or anything? It's like, can we just go and have a beer and, and just talk? And it's the same with, and my wife grounds me a lot as well. It's like, she's there if I want to talk about it, but very much as soon as I finish work, it's like, here, here's what we're doing. Da, 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 da. It's more like back to reality, which I think is important because I think sometimes it can own you too much, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like everything that you've been through your whole journey is everything that you do every day at work so I can imagine it can be quite all all encompassing at times um your business every mind at work you on your website you talk about the sort of ethos rather than going in and working for an organization you work with an organization to help improve mental health and how to support people how exactly do you do that because I know there are a lot of places offering things like mental health first aid and bits and pieces like that so what do you do how have you shaped this organization yeah it's a I mean our approach is it sounds simple but it's it's more challenging it's like every company is different um and every person is different so like if you think about us three we're all individuals we all manage mental health in a very uniquely different way we've all got our own experiences etc so if you think about an organization of let's say 500 employees you know for a long period of time it's like okay they need to approach mental health in the same way as a business that has a thousand employees and then you look at sectors industries and demographics and everything else there's a huge amount of you know challenges that come with with workplace mental health and and every mind started from me doing talks in companies and I would go in I would do a talk I'd share my story I would see an impact 
because in the workplace like there's stigma outside of the workplace but in the workplace it's even worse let's be honest it's like oh we don't want to talk about this stuff and and this was i'd say yeah about four or five years ago and i would see that, that people are now having a conversation and they're talking about their own experiences and they feel comfortable to do so but then i would leave and i'm like okay what now because they're not having me back because well mental health day happens once a year or or, or, you know, they can't get me to keep sharing my story and sharing my story and sharing my story. So every mind essentially evolved from that. And it was like, how do you create that momentum after? So um, it started with an app. We developed an app, which was like, we'll do a talk. And then after that, you have access to an app that has more personal stories and experiences and content. And it tailors the content to every individual. So it's very, um, it's very unique in that way that we launched that just before COVID, which was great for the business. But then within the space of three months, every man and dog had an app and um, we were being judged on, on our app. And what I mean by that is not always, but a lot of the times we were like being seen as, okay, we've got this great app. Now we've solved the problem. And that didn't align well with me and who, who we are. So we started to add in more stuff like training and workshops and management training and mental health first aid and, and essentially now we are as like a partner. We're a well-being partner, a mental health partner for organizations, but every company, every partner has different packages based upon what they need. So we work with like the likes of co-ops. So we manage the co-op, but equally the way that we support their travel division is, is you got the retail division, they're, they're all different. They've got different apps, they've got different approaches. Um, we send all of our partners resources, a calendar for the whole year. They all get dedicated well-being business consultant. And essentially it's like, growing it past me just doing a talk and that's it um so yeah every every partner is very different and we're just shy of a hundred organizations that we work with on a year-to-year basis we then work with more organizations like ad hoc doing training and stuff like that but it, yeah it's been incredible to see it grow and we're at about like 12 13 employees now we're adding more speakers in trying to get more stories out there and just our core value is personal like from, from you jump on a call with a guy who's telling you about our partnership to the wellbeing business consultant, to the session that we deliver, everything is personal. We've all got our experiences. We all talk openly about them. And I think for me, it's about always trying to bring that into the organization. Like mm-hmm. my employees don't need to talk about their biggest life challenges, but I want them to be human. I want them to know that they can be human. And that translates as a, as a business. And um, that's our core value. We have to be personal going on that personal and obviously sharing those lived experiences and it sounds like it's the very essence of of what you do um and it's the same with us here at at strong tea you know we we share people's stories but why do you think it's so powerful Mm, i think it's like comes back to vulnerability it's like when we when we had our little pre-chat right giving away the secrets of the podcast Uh, (laughs) i'm sure we could have spoke for like hours after that because like i'm i'm vulnerable um you both are you're both open and honest and because of that you I feel this is going to sound a bit spiritual and probably a bit out there but like you can connect on a much deeper level right does that make sense I think it's like no matter who you meet if, if you see a bit of human about them you can connect on a much deeper level and this is the thing with vulnerability is what I say to people it's like don't don't compare yourself to me out here talking about losing my dad to suicide and the mask that I wore and everything else it could be as simple as saying I'm really struggling to deal with working from home at the moment. You know, I've got the kids, you know, my wife's heavily pregnant. I've got a lot of work on at the moment. I'm just, you know, feeling a little bit overwhelmed. That's still vulnerability, but it's not like me bearing all and sharing all of my biggest insecurities and fears. So I think it's just, it's, it's infectious, right? It's like, you know, I always talk about the ripple effects. I've seen as I share, can I help one person? It's a, it's a really cheesy way of looking at it, but like, can I help one person? That one person, the way I now see it is if I can get them to at some point in their life share vulnerably, they'll encourage another person. That person will encourage another person, another person. And it is this ripple effect that you then see. So when you're talking about mental health stigma and shame and awareness and how I was brought up and how everyone was brought up, I think it does start with personal experience and vulnerability. And and like you say, I think people, it is complex, but like it's too simple for people to realize it's like okay so i can be a bit more human and i can start to get people to talk more openly about it it's like yes you can it's just it's very difficult to do but hopefully with more and more people doing it more and more people feel comfortable to do so i think um i think you've hit the nail on the head there because vicky and i 
um, came together after I I set up my website, Strong and Brave, um, which was set up after my daughter died. And I didn't want it to be solely based around child loss and baby loss. I wanted it to be a support network for people struggling with all sorts of different things. And you talk, you talk very openly there about comparisons and about how people compare their experiences. And I've had different people say to me over time, oh, you know, um, you know, such and such had a miscarriage. I know that's nothing like what you went through. And I'm like, that's not, it's not about that you've experienced your own loss and it's what matters to you it's not about comparing it to me or anything else and I think the vulnerability of people and I've shared my story and I actually had my first email back to the website the other day and it was from a woman who'd lost her son last month and she said I don't know what to do I don't I don't ever see a point when I won't feel like this and I was like oh my god that was me that was me a year ago trying to reach out to say I don't ever think I'm not going to feel like this and it's horrific. And someone then reached out to me and what you're doing, you're doing it on a much larger scale because you're sharing your story. And like you say, it's your dad's story and he's helping so many people. And I, I don't really have a question. I'm just, I just think it's inspiring what you do because you're using your vulnerability and your experience mm. to help and support others. And like you say, if that just helps one person, and then how do you support more and how do you, you know, it, it's, it, it is inspiring. And I'm just going to sit over here now with my no questions. <laughs> I probably do have a question somewhere, but I've got brain fart now. So I can't. I think, um, no, I really appreciate you sharing. And it's, as you say, it's, um, it's, it's never, it's never difficult to talk about any, any experience that we've had, but I come to realize it is a strong, um, I don't know. I, I feel I get sounds terrible. I get a lot more satisfaction, not a lot more satisfaction, but I've realized I get a lot of satisfaction from can I give someone else a platform or can I inspire someone else to share? Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is like we have like Jess and, and James Mace and we have other speakers and, you know, other people that we're now embedded into the business because, you know, believe it or not, I don't want it to be all be about me. It's like I've got a story. But equally, my story will resonate with some people, but it's not going to resonate with all. You know, whereas, again, you're looking at like what you're sharing there, Katie. It's like your story is going to help other people as well. And you're already starting to see that. And again, same with you, Vicky, and someone else. It's like so I do get a lot of um, I get a lot of motivation from can I help others share and help others? Because the more people are talking about their own experiences, the more other people are going to be able to relate to them. We've talked about um, a few times before on on these episodes about gendered approaches to mental health Um, and the stats out there, you know, will say that, you know, men in particular, you know, the highest of suicide rates, you know, apart from trans folk. And I'm just wondering the work that you do, are you finding that men are more, uh, what's the word, receptive now to you know taking off that mask or at least changing their views on what mental health is and what they previously believed I think we're getting there um the biggest challenges that I get with the talks that I deliver are often from men so in terms of healthy disagreement you know in terms of oh no no shouldn't do it like this shouldn't do it like that but equally, I'm also very surprised a lot of the time. So we work with a few construction companies. Um, construction is very male dominated. The, the suicide rates in construction are extremely high. It's one of the worst industries out there. Again, like alluding to some of the statistics, men are three times more likely to take their own lives than women. Um, although women are more likely to attempt suicide than men. Um, and yeah, like suicide is the biggest killer of men under 45 in the UK. It, it's staggering. And I think with that as well, one, one really important statistic that's not often shared is, is also the demographics in terms of the, the ages. So I think a lot of people will say, okay, it's the younger demographics that are struggling with mental health and suicide the most. But when you actually look at the every suicide per 100,000 people, the older demographics, the numbers are actually really, really high. In fact, higher than a lot of the younger demographics. They're not shouted about as much because they're not the leading cause of death. You know, you've got other reasons with, with the older demographics. But yeah, I think with men, you know, construction, there's a real sort of, again, man up, sort of stiff upper lip kind of attitude that, that we're kind of conditioned to have. Um, but I'm, I'm still so surprised, like always, always surprised. And this is just, this goes to show you probably the gendered approach. I will jump on a session 
with that construction company. We're delivering resilience training to like all 4,000 of their employees. And, and I'll have like 15 faces on the Zoom call. And I go, he's not going to like this. He's going to be challenging. He's going to be hard, right? And I'm already doing more. I'm already stereotyping people based upon their age, how they look. They're not going to get this. They're not going to understand it. And I'm so, so surprised always. There was one guy that stands out to me the most of like, you know, he was a, he was a builder. He was there like hiding his jacket on. He was kind of like sitting there in like a, in a building place with like people around him. And I'm like, this guy's not going to get it. And, and I shared the story of my dad, as I always do at the beginning. And I said to people, you know, how would you define resilience? And he unmuted his microphone. And he was like, um, I had a similar experience to you where I lost my son to suicide. And he said, I lost my son to suicide. I never expected it to happen. And I just come straight back to work, carried on with life. And then he was like, then I broke. I was like, couldn't get out of bed in the mornings, couldn't do anything like this. And like, there I am, like I do it all the time. I'm like, I just judged you <laughs> saying that you're not going to get it, but you've just had an experience that you've now been open and vulnerable about. So I think, yeah, we just need to have more guys talking and, and the more we can get men talking, the more open we can make it, the better. But, but equally, I think, again, it just comes back to no matter our gender, no matter who we are, it's just, it's a, we're human beings at the end of the day. And, and yeah, these are difficult conversations that we should have a little bit more. You, um, you've touched on, um, yes, we are, we are all human beings and regardless of the gender, but um, the, the whole man up ethos and we are getting better, but it's something that struck me and I know it's a fictional program, but have been binging the last kingdom, which is all about Vikings. And it strikes me that they the toxic masculinity. It, I wonder where it comes from because mm-hmm. this, this is a guy who is supposedly, you know, big, tough Viking goes out and kills people, whatever. They don't, they don't shy away from him crying about loss and, you know, things like that. And you think, well, where where has that been bred from at what point did we start saying to boys or to anyone you know you're going to be weak if you show your you know the way that you're actually thinking or the way you're actually feeling and we like you're right we are getting better but I wonder if you're coming across someone who is very much in that sort of mindset of you know very you know straightforward not going to share emotions and things like that how would you advise someone, and I, I know we talked about demasking a little while ago, but someone who's had that mask on for so long, mm-hmm. how would you advise them to, to take it off and to, to get the help that they need? Because there are so many, clearly so many people struggling, otherwise the suicide rates wouldn't be so high. People are struggling every day and it's getting harder to live with the cost of living, the increase in price for everything you know the pressure that's now surrounding everyday life it's becoming so hard for people how do you advise people to actually say do you know what it, it's not harmful to be vulnerable go and seek help yeah it's a, yeah, it's a question I get asked the most on sessions I deliver because I think a lot of people want to help others um and a lot of people are concerned about others and, and the challenge becomes like when you know that someone let's say it's a man in your life is struggling but they don't know or they don't want to get the help I think that becomes more difficult because it's like I know this person's struggling they're potentially men in particular are more likely to use harmful coping methods as well like alcohol drugs everything else you know I know that they're self-sabotage and I know that they're using these behaviors because of x y and z but when I try and get them to get the help, they won't go and get the help. I think that's the biggest challenge that a lot of people have. And it's a terrible answer that I always give, but I think it's the only answer that you can give. And I think it comes down to time and compassion. You know, one of the biggest mistakes I made with my dad was I tried to support him through solutions, not support him through compassion. And what I mean by that is the days that my dad was like, Paul, you know, I never used to say it that much, but like, Paul, sometimes I'll never be the same dad again. Sometimes I feel like just, and I would say like, dad, stop. Like you got nothing to be depressed about. Let's go for a run. Let's go watch the football. You know, let's do this. Let's do that. And and that would give him like a, a little bit of relief. He'd be like, oh, we'll watch the football later. It's fine. But I used to feel like so much satisfaction in that because I'd be like, I've done something. I've, I've solved something for him. But when I was in that moment, what I realized and I learned a lot from was I don't want your solutions. I want your ears. Like just give me your ears. And that's all that I want. And I think if someone isn't, able to get the support or wanting to get the support 
we will sometimes be like, solve, 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 solve. I need to get them to support. I need to get them to support. But sometimes for me, looking back on my experience, like no matter my friends, my, my mom, my, anyone, like I still wouldn't have gone and got the support. But what was so important for me in that period of time is I knew that I had people. So I knew I had my mum, I knew I had my brother, I knew I had my friends. So it wasn't like them trying to solve it for me. It was just like, I know that they're there if I do want to talk to them and I'm ready to talk to them. So I think in that example, it's thinking less about the solution side of it. And can I just let them know that I'm there? You might not want to talk about this right now. I know it's difficult, but I just want to remind you I'm here for you whenever you, you need me to be. Um, and I think focusing on that, that's really important. Um, just quickly on like where you, where we probably get this man up, stiff up a lip attitude from. There was a really interesting conversation that I wanted to just quickly share. It was with um, a guy called Ricky Nuttall. He was a, a firefighter in the Grenfell accident. And now he's like very open about mental health and the challenges that he's had. But he, he said something that's stuck with me. He said, um, it come from potentially the wars. Now, if you think about, as you've just said, like the Vikings, the fact that men used to sit around campfires, sing songs and talk about their feelings. Like we have, a man is someone in my eyes and everyone's got their own definition. Is like, I like to provide and protect for my family. There's a part of me that likes that. And that's kind of in my DNA, me personally. But at the same time, I think being emotional as a man is fine. You know, being able to talk about my own insecurities as a man is fine. And I think men have always done that, as you've said, from that series that you're watching. Now, what he said is when the wars happened, there was this do not talk about this kind of attitude drilled into them. It was like we're trying to recruit people <laughs> to come to war. Do not go and talk about what you're seeing here. Like yeah. keep it to yourself. And World War One, World War Two was my granddad's generation and my gra- my great granddad's generation. And I think about my granddad, born in 1925. But I never saw him cry until the last three months of his life. And what's really interesting with my granddad is like my dad was an only child, so we lost my dad to suicide in the March. We lost my nan to cancer in the April. So like he lost his son and wife within the space of a month, yeah. and he never cried. Like he never showed any emotion. And the days that we thought he was going to break, like he was like, "No, oh, I'm good. I'm fine." Um, he lasted till he was 95. And I remember, you know, when I become a dad, I used to say, I'll oh, go and talk to Granddad Mac about um, the war. He can read off stories. Oh, yeah, da, 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 da. The last three months of his life when he was really emotional because his physical health deteriorated, I think he just kind of gave in. I remember saying, oh, tell Freddie about the war. Like, I'd never seen a man so emotional. He was like, do not talk about that. Do not talk about the war. Crying his eyes out. Like, please don't talk about the war. And I was like, comes back to that mask. For years, you'd been putting on this like mask that the war was this, the war was that. Now we're seeing the real you. Yeah, we're seeing those emotions that you were probably told to suppress and never talk about. And then, like my dad was brought up by that man, and you know, does that make sense? I think. Yeah, I think it's we, we, we might be getting there, but I think mm-hmm. it's a really good observation. It's like Vikings that are going out and killing people and doing what they need to do, but then they're crying at the same time. There's been something that's happened that stopped mm-hmm. a certain generation from doing that. So I think it's a really good observation. It's interesting because I know I've talked about post-traumatic stress before, but you mentioned the war and so on and how post-traumatic stress, see, you know, it was much later that doctors actually diagnosed it as a proper disorder. It was something that men suffered from, you know, being in the trenches and being on the front line. But it was suppressed so much. And by that time, you know, where people were dismissing the behavior and dismissing any kind of damage that was done to these young men, the horrendous damage was already done. These men were far, far beyond any kind of help. And that mask was almost welded on. There was no way that they could talk about it, let alone, you know, be helped. Um, and that's the same today. Just because we know about it, it doesn't mean that people are going to do anything about it unless the support structures are around them yeah and i guess sorry i was just gonna say we have to like it's we have to break the norm it's like Mm. um i talk openly about my dad's experience but i'm the first person to admit i don't cry that often and i struggle to cry i know i should cry more but i struggle to cry and the reason why i struggle to cry is my dad never cried and my granddad never cried (laughs) so you think about that i'm a young man role modeling a dad who doesn't cry and a granddad who doesn't cry so I remember like when my granddad passed um my brother again my brother's um he's he's in a wheelchair now he had an accident at work about four and a half years ago so I become like my granddad's carer um and my mom become a carer for my brother and so I was there throughout like my whole granddad's deterioration because my dad was an only child 
And I remember when he passed, again, grief is very unique and individual. There was a real sense of relief with my granddad. I grieved very early on for my granddad because he was so active. He was running at like 92 years old. The last like year and a half, two years, when he was like bed bound, you know, in like everything, like he just wasn't happy. He was ready to go. So like when he passed, there was a real sense of like, oh, I'm, I'm we're glad. Um, but I remember going to my granddad's house with my with my wife. And I remember like looking around, it was empty and it kind of like sunk in a little bit. And she saw like a little tear in my eye. And I was just like, and she was like, just cry, Paul. <laughs> like, you tell everyone to cry, just cry. And like, she put her arms around me and I, I was still like holding it back. So strange. I was still like, no, 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 don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. Um, because I'm in front of my wife. Does that make sense? So it's like, it's, it's ingrained in a lot of us and it's passed down the generations. But I think it comes a point where like, hopefully my kids, like, I'm soon to have three boys, right? Hopefully they'll um be more emotional and more open and honest and then like by the time I always say by the time I'm a great granddad we might we might get somewhere but yeah that's the way I see it it's really interesting I just want to pick up what you said there about you know it's okay to cry and your wife giving do you think it is about permission do you Mm. think it is about telling other people look you're safe it's okay yeah I think so I think it's really important yeah I think it's having that safe space to be able to cry um yeah I think it's a really really good point like, and was that safe space I used to go into her little room and I'd cry to her before and I could cry to her again but like going out with my friends wasn't a safe space and, and there was no permission to cry but again once you potentially do it then again you have that permission so no I think that's a really good observation I think um what you've said about trying to change the mold in terms of you you're raising your children to be more emotional and to feel their feelings um I think with this generation our our children will will be more in touch with their feelings and know that it's okay to be a certain way do you think there's more that can be done I don't I don't know if there is currently anything happening do you think there's more that can be done in schools at a school level to teach more about mental health mental illness um, understanding it better and to have a more healthy relationship because I know I mean it's it's been a while since I've been at school but there was nothing like that in school even at uni there was no sort of mental health programs anything like that and I kind of feel that you're at such an impressionable age at that point it's the ideal time to do it yeah 100% so yeah I, I apart from the workplace stuff I've got a very strong yeah purpose around that like I campaign for that a lot I, I work with um a few charities in that space like beyond is one um I've run eight marathons in eight days for beyond like it was a <laughs> yeah it was um it was a, one of my random ideas where at that time of deciding to do it one in eight children had a diagnosed mental illness so that's that's shocking right so I was like oh I'm gonna run eight marathons in eight days and eight, eight cities as well just to throw in like Whoa. harder so I started in Glasgow and I worked my way down like Manchester and different cities and ended up in my hometown of Essex and I finished at my dad's memorial bench um and it was like running five kilometer laps around parks so people could join in so um I did wow. the eight marathons last October and we raised yeah nine thousand pounds for beyond so that nine thousand pound the reason why i chose beyond it was started by a good friend of mine he's a campaigner johnny benjamin he's there's a documentary on him called strange on the bridge um he he started the charity because he's got a real sort of again same as what you've just said we wasn't taught about any of this at school and schools need to do more especially like social media and all the other impacts that the young people now have and i love beyond because they were like look we've got schools that we give grants to and then they go and invest the money into well-being and other stuff. And they were like, we'll tell you the school, we'll tell you what we've done. So that money funded, I think it was free schools for uh, maybe two terms or, or half a year in terms of like their well-being programs. Um, there was a lot of stuff like it was one that was something to do with like horse riding and horses. So like the kids would go and experience that and talk about emotions and well-being. There was another one that paid for like mindfulness classes. So I think what's really important to note with with the school system is i think mental illness we should have an awareness of it but i don't want that to be the focus it's more about like you said emotions and how do you manage emotions i wasn't i wasn't taught how to manage emotions or anything like that um but yeah schools can definitely do a lot more it's now one in six one in six children now with diagnosed mental illness um and like yeah cams which is like the children's 
sort of mental health service, the waiting lists are, are, are ridiculous. You're looking at like two, two and a half years in some some counties for like any any form of therapy. And as you say, you know, a child who could be 11 having to wait till they're like 13 and a half to get their first point of therapy, what can happen in that two and a half years? You know, it's 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 shocking. But I think governments and everyone else is avoiding it because it takes a massive massive amount of work to be able to do something about it but you've got to start somewhere and the the shocking thing is is i know beyond like they have schools crying out for grants they want to do more but they just don't have the funding or the resources to be able to do it but yeah like with my with my kids i think you know my youngest who's um five he's like year one they're doing some stuff in their school which is nice to see like he comes back and talks about like oh emotions and you know (laughs) I feel it here and I feel it like this is when I feel this so I think they're slowly starting to do it but the problem is is like it's the the schools that are doing it have teachers that are passionate about running classes outside of school and at lunch break and all of that you know that's the schools that are doing it and that shouldn't be the case it should be mandatory yeah I'm very conscious that we're taking up an awful lot of your time and you sound like super busy with all of your like lots of work and marathons to run all over the country. (laughs) um, I suppose um, one of the one of the last questions I want to ask is um, mental health and maintaining mental health is obviously a long term it's like you say, it's not just you come out of therapy and you're like, oh, you know, jazz hands, I'm okay. (laughs) You know, how do you manage your mental health and your mental wellness and also your grief on a day-to-day basis because it's something that I've struggled with and I know I will continue to struggle with but I'm very open about I do talk about it but it's interesting to know how other people deal with it because you know I'm always looking for like what's the answer how can I make it better (laughs) I think that's the challenge though right it's like (laughs) I'm looking for that answer and I still haven't found it <laughs> no, I think the way I see it is I've I've learned a lot over the last I, I always say 13 years since my dad, but um there's a couple of things that stand out to me the most. It's like the first one is people have to understand that we're on a sliding scale always. I think society, media, you know, whatever, there's a there's a big emphasis on being fine all the time. It's like unless I'm fine like what am I does that make sense it's like there's a there's a real gray area of like not being okay but not being fine that we don't really talk about a lot we talk about like the crisis I had a breakdown and this was me and we talk about that I'm fine and life's glorious we don't talk about that massive gray area where the majority of us will spend our times um and I think again when you're looking at you know any treatment for mental health whether it's you know antidepressants or whether it's therapy or whether it's you know whatever it could be you question what is the goal there like is the goal there to take medication so I feel fine so I feel happy all the time so I think there's an expectation to always be happy which which is sometimes quite damaging and and that had a big impact on me and my biggest fear as I sit here and it always is and it probably always will be is I'll end up like my dad and what I mean by that is I'm very sensitive like my dad I was always compared to my dad there's, there's research that shows once you're impacted by suicide, you're at more of a chance of taking your own life as well. Um, it's my biggest fear of my kids. I'm like, oh, I don't want them to ever do that because you're, I'm so exposed to it all of the time. And because of that fear, that actually led me to becoming so obsessed with improving all the time. So like the cold shower is at 5 a.m. in the morning and this and that and everything else. And what I actually found myself doing was feeling worse because of that obsession to always be good and always be better. And what I then learned is like acceptance is actually a really important part of this. It's like, I want to, I want to be better. I want to grow. I want to focus on myself. I want to go for my runs and journaling and meditation. I still go to therapy, all of that stuff. But there's often days where I just think to myself, I'm just going to accept that I'm having a really bad day. And like, I'm just going to accept that I'm not going to go for that run today. And that's like, that's really difficult to do. Um, the acceptance, I think, is really, really important. Like we're we're humans and we can't always get it right. Um, but yeah, knowing that sliding scale, like I'm constantly, constantly being more aware of how I'm feeling now. Like self-awareness. How am I feeling this morning? Woke up this morning, don't feel great. Should I go for a run? Hmm, I'll skip the run. It's like this constant conversation I'm having with myself. You'll feel better when you go for that run, Paul. All right, I'll go for that run, right? And it's like, <laughs> you know, go for the run, feel better. I did a session this morning, this now, and it's like, 
you know, but it's constantly up and down, up and down, up and down every day, every hour. And I think people just need to be aware of that. So I think, yeah, accepting that we're not always going to get it right, accepting that we're not always going to be good all of the time, but understanding that I can go from like a two, which is feeling rubbish to an eight, like the next day in the same way that I can go from an eight to a one. And I just constantly up and down. And I think it's just being aware of that a bit more. I love that self-checking approach, that whole, right. How are you doing? I'm all right. Yeah. Where, where are you on a scale? I, I love that approach of just, you know, almost taking care of yourself and yep. having that self-checking approach. Um, Paul, I can't thank you enough for being so open with us on today's episode. Um, but I will offer the floor to you. Are there any final words you'd like to say or, or a final, final sip? sip? A final sip. <laughs> <laughs> a final sip. Um, no, just, just again, thank you. I think it's, it's always great to see podcasts like this where you're encouraging those difficult conversations. Again, I, be- I believe in it so much. So, you know, whether this podcast, as I say, helps one person or whatever, like that's that's the main thing. So um, I appreciate you guys giving me the time and, and creating the platform. And it's been incredible to, to meet you both and hopefully we can stay in touch. But no, um, if anyone wants to connect with me, I'm pretty active over on LinkedIn and Instagram, if you search for Paul McGregor, and if you want to find out more about Every Mind, just go to everymindatwork.com. Um, but yeah, no, I appreciate your your time today. Thank you, Paul. We will put everything on the um, podcast listing on the website as well. So all of your uh, links and uh, connection bits on social media so that people can get in touch with you. But thank you. Thank you for your time and good luck with your house renovations. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. <laughs> Getting back to your nice coffee machine. That's the goal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks.